This is Journey Church Podcast. Here at Journey, we believe in encountering God and embracing people. From wherever you're listening, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, What you didn't see in that video is that all the staff swarmed the food directly after that video. But we do want to invite you to be part of that conversation. We really believe that God is calling the nations to... Uh, join us here in community, and we want to highlight all your national dishes. So uh, sign up. You can bring your favorite thing. You don't even have to make it. I mean, you could order it takeout and just bring it too. That would be acceptable. Um, But we are really excited about that conversation. We actually believe that that conversation is a spiritual one, that we would uh, determine uh, how we live with one another in the unity of Jesus. And um, And also, just if you like food. It's a good thing to come to, so put it on your calendars, March 13th. It's going to be great. Okay, we're in our sixth week of 1 Peter, and I'm going to tell you this, that I thought once we got through the submission texts, it was going to be great, smooth sailing, just like live for Jesus. I was wrong. As I uh, leaned into this verse, today we're going to talk about um, two of the verses that historically have been named some of the most difficult verses in the New Testament. So there's that, everyone. So this is a good day. Uh, I am really, um, I am really thrilled by the way that people have are leaning into God's word. You know, if I could, if my prayer could be anything for our community and our church, is that we would become people who are very passionate about God's word, learning God's word, loving God's word. That every day that you would get up, you would say to yourself, God, would you show me? something new in your word, not for the sake of us being Bible nerds, although some of us are, uh, but for the sake of our lives looking more like Jesus. And the only way we're going to look more like Jesus is if we know what Jesus wants from us and then say, God, would you make us obedient? So my prayer today is that we would read the scripture and then we would say, God, make us, help us to live this out. Um, Okay, Uh, so for those of you that haven't been here, uh, let me just give you the Coles Notes. I don't even know if Coles Coles Notes a thing anymore. I don't think they are. But if you're old like me or middle-aged like me, you remember when you went to that bookstore when you didn't read the Shakespeare play and you had a test on it the next day? You got those little things called Coles Notes. This is for all the young adults and younger in this room. You don't even know the horror we had to go through to pass tests. Okay, but here's the Coles notes. Um, Peter, in this book, is talking to a bunch of Christians who have been displaced due to persecution and other factors, and and now they're all over the world. So the book of 1 Peter is, um, biblical historians call it a regional letter, meaning that it was read in different churches, uh, house churches it would have been at the time, to different people. And in this letter, Peter reminds Christians that our allegiance, that their allegiance doesn't rest with the government, although they had to respect the government, but that they were called to be different, um, to live their lives in such a way that people around them want to know what makes them so different. And in the previous two weeks, we did talk about the submission text, and we saw how Peter really showed us that evidence of our spiritual maturity will be that we submit to the authorities over us and teach and we learn to teach others to do that as well. And Peter really emphasizes how we are to respond in unjust situations. We talked about last week how those submission texts were really talking to an unjust system, and Peter understood that. In the second part of 1 Peter 3, Peter doubles down on what we're to do when we're feeling under it. So I've entitled this message, What to Do When You're Feeling Under It. And if you have lived... um, 
if you've been living in the world in the last little bit, you may, you may really um, resonate with this. How do we respond to an unjust world that's pressing in on us? We're going to study um, a, a number of verses today, about 12. And um, like I said before, just a bit of a warning, two of these verses are considered some of the most difficult in the entire New Testament. But this is actually why we study the scripture together. So a lot of us over coronavirus have had to grapple with questions about like, why, why do we even have church? Like, what's the point of going to church? And part of the reason we do is because then we're together doing something. We're grappling with texts together. The truth of the matter is there's difficult things in Christianity that we have to wrestle with. Um, and you can't wrestle if it's only you, right? Because if you wrestle by yourself, that's weird, okay? Like if you're enjoying a wrestling match by yourself, I, I don't know what to say to you. <laughs> a wrestle requires other people. And it requires others to be part of that wrestle with you. I would suggest that the, that the best way we wrestle with scripture is actually um, we wrestle with it different, different, you need to have people different than you. Wrestling with scripture, seeing scripture different than you. This is why I believe God's called the nations uh, to churches. I think the, the healthiest churches look like Revelation where, because your culture doesn't have the, doesn't have the gamut on scripture. You, you don't have it all figured out. You've got blind spots. I've got blind spots. We all do. So our wrestle actually should come with people that are different than us. And that's what makes a really healthy church um, good. Um, and so for a moment, though, I want you to think about the context of the letter that First Peter is written in. Don't think of it just from your own context. I want you to think about it from the context of the people that were first reading this letter. They were exiles. They had left everything they knew because of persecution for Jesus. If you don't read the letter with this context, you'll miss the subversiveness of what Peter's saying. You'll read it like, oh, isn't that nice? You won't see, and you'll, you, you actually won't see some of the humor in the Bible too. When people tell me, oh, the Bible's so boring. I try to read it, but it's so boring. I think it's often because we forget to read it in the context that it was written. Okay, so here we go. I want you to think about yourself. Pretend this for just a minute. You have been exiled. You are no longer living where you grew up. You have to move to somewhere colder than Alberta. Okay, finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Can you hear this already, the subversiveness in this text already? Your governor at this point is Nero. He is burning down your life. He's blaming you for things you did not do. Be compassionate and humble. Don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you are called so that you may inherit a blessing. I mean, this is a bit maddening, this first part of the text, right? I've entitled this the virtuous um, cycle, because Peter begins this section emphasizing what you're to do when you're, when you're in an unjust situation. And we know that because the submission text prior to this, we're talking about that. So Peter's saying, actually, this is how you're to act it out. This is how you're to live when you're, in, when you're dealing with injustice. And so does Peter say here, okay, so what you're to do when everything is awful is get really mad, because that does a lot of good. Get really mad, fight each other. No, in fact, he says that when you're dealing with an unjust system, what you have to do is fight for peace. And we're going to see that in a minute, uh, particularly with one another. And so he, he, we can go to the next slide. He says, first of all, that you're to repay 
um, that you're too, can we just, oh, sorry, the next one, the third one there. The virtuous cycle. Yep, <laughs> okay. Um, so he says, first of all, that you're to be like-minded. Now, what does it mean to be like-minded? It doesn't mean that you're to be like, oh, you, your favorite color is purple, so is mine. Uh, being like-minded doesn't mean that we don't have disagreements. It actually doesn't mean that we see things all the same. That, that's called being part of a cult. Uh, what Peter is reminding us here is to remember the things we have in common. Remember our humanity. Remember that we were all made from dust. All of us are just like a bunch of dust particles put together. That's what it means to be like-minded. And this, um, this helps us. Because if I can remember, if you and I disagree about something, which I'm sure there's many things we disagree about, but if you and I disagree about something, if I can remember that you are created in the image of God, if I can remember that when we discuss things, that changes everything. Like-minded, we believe in Jesus. That's why at Journey Church, there's going to be a lot of different ideas, and a lot of you follow each other on social media, and then you get all up in knots, because that person, I can't believe they posted that. What I want to call you to is what Peter says, is when you're underneath it, just remember that you, you agree about more than you disagree. Be like-minded. And then it's interesting because then he says, the next thing he says is to be sympathetic. It's interesting that the charge to be sympathetic comes next because sympathy means the ability to put myself in someone else's shoes. It helps a lot. Being sympathetic changes everything. So I can remember, um, I was in my early 20s, and Dave and I had first taken on our first lead pastor roles in the inner city. And I had all these, like, grandiose views that we were going to go in there and change people's, I mean, people weren't going to be in gangs anymore. I was going to, like, get in there and be like David Wilkerson and, like, uh, and um, set the world straight, as I tend to think I can do. And then I got in there and realized, oh, life is really hard for people. And I got sympathy for some of the decisions that people had to make and some of the mistakes they made. And I wanted to set them straight, but I realized, ah, no, I, I have to, like, my sympathy actually caused my very stark black and whiteness to turn to some kind of shade of gray. Now, that wasn't, I'm not saying that we falter on the truth, but what I am saying is how we view each other. When we get sympathetic towards one another, it changes how we interact with one another. This is a, this is a, good, um, a good way for us to think about this. Can you state someone else's opinion in a way that fairly represents their view? Can you restate someone's opinion? This is how you know you're being sympathetic. Okay, so I don't even have to spell this out. Think about this week in the news. Just one or two things. We only had a few things happening this week in Canada. So no matter what side of the fence you find yourself, literal fence you find yourself on, the question becomes, can you restate someone else's view in a way that fairly represents them? Or do you have to be bombastic and say, well, I hope that side burns, or I hope they all get arrested, or I hope, you know, whatever side you're on. To be sympathetic means to put yourself in someone else's shoes. Can you see how this would change the way that we interact with one another? Or can I identify the concerns or the pain that underlines the position that somebody else has? If your first inclination is to right out of the gate burn everything down, then I would say you need to come back to 1 Peter where he says, be like-minded, remember what, you're, what, you're, what you have the same, and then be sympathetic to one another. 
And then, and then Peter says, love one another. Now that just sounds like, well, like, of course, it's Christian, so we just say love one another. But what Peter is talking about here is um, a deep, founded love that says, my concerns are not as important as unity. Uh, a good parallel passage to 1 Peter chapter 3 is Romans chapter 14. And this is where Paul is talking, and he says, listen, I'm paraphrasing here, it's not literal, but he's saying, listen, I got a lot of opinions, and I actually think my opinions are right, because he was Paul. You know, Peter and Paul, they're like great, because they're like really like burn the world down kind of people. They're like, just put it right out there. But, but Paul says this, I have opinions, and I actually think people that don't agree with me are wrong. But then he says he would rather downplay his convictions than destroy unity. I would rather downplay my conviction, convictions than... Now, does that make us wishy-washy? No, because we again go back to being like-minded. There are some things, yes, we're going to die on a hill for, 100%, and we, maybe the things like, things like Jesus, of course, die on that hill every single time. But there's other things, and this is what Paul's getting at in Romans chapter 14. There's other things that you just say, you know what, I'd rather, I'd rather downplay my convictions to have unity in the body of Christ. I, I, I've had a lot of friends of mine this week emailing me saying we need to have courage, and I actually think we need to have courage to call for unique unity in these days. I actually think we need to square our shoulders back and remember what the scriptures tells us, that when we are under it, that we become like-minded and sympathetic, that we would love one another, and then we would have compassion. for. Do you see how this leads to itself? When you get like-minded and then you're sympathetic, then you love one another, then it's easier to have compassion for one another. Do you ever wonder how Jesus had compassion for people? He was God. It's like he knew all the... Like people in Jesus' day did dumb stuff, just like we do dumb stuff. <laughs> But Jesus, it said that Jesus had compassion on the crowds. The word compassion there is the Greek word splagma. And um, I'm going to take you back to grade three grammar here. It's an onomatopoeia. Do you remember that? I like saying that word. I was excited I got to say it this week. It's an onomatopoeia, which means that it was sounded to Greek like the word splash. And this idea, and it was a guttural splagma. I'm not saying it with a good Greek accent. I could never be an actress. But it's a deep feeling of pity that wells up inside of you. It's like this idea of being totally splashed, totally soaked by a wave. That's the idea you would get there. And it's not just fake nicety, like, oh, I have so much compassion for you. Do you, do you know when you say these kinds of like platitudes to people? But it's like a deep guttural feel. I'm telling you this right now, people of God, we are never... We will never get the compassion of Jesus until we're like-minded, sympathetic, till we love one another, decide to downplay our own convictions for the sake of unity. That's the only way we're getting to compassion. You can't just get up one morning and go, well, I'll have a little bit of compassion because I... No, no, we actually... Like, this is... If we don't have this, people will always hide sin. Th this leads to all kinds of abuse and hiding of sin because we don't actually believe that each other that 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 will have compassion for each other so people hide their sin for years and years and years and they decay internally we are called to this kind of deep guttural compassion for one another and then that calls us to humility you see when i recognized that i actually had to be sympathetic for people that had different experiences than me 
Like when you really get sympathetic for people, you get all kinds of humility because you realize that even in your own self, you've got all kinds of stuff you've got to work out. And that humility becomes like a virtuous cycle. We get trapped in this cycle of virtuosity. Want to call us as a church, Journey Church, when we're feeling under it, to not lash out at one another? Uh, by the way, nobody came to Jesus by some smart tweet. Like, nobody. Like, there is nobody in the history of the world. I, I mean, I'm saying this probably facetiously, but actually probably truthfully too. Nobody ever got in a baptism tank and was like, you know what? The reason I made a decision for Jesus is somebody had a snarky tweet, and I right there thought, my life has been changed. But plenty of people have come to Jesus because somebody walked out this virtuous cycle. Plenty of people have had their minds changed about things because somebody walked out the virtuous cycle. I don't care what side you end yourself on. Because, you know, we're in this debate today. We'll be in another debate tomorrow. There'll always be something, right? I don't care where you stand. My question becomes, and I think, and it's interesting that Peter didn't mention any specifics here. Like he didn't say, and also I'd like to talk to you about the way Nero lied about us. We didn't actually burn down Rome. It wasn't our fault. He didn't even say that. He just said, listen, when you're under it, you're just going to get yourself in this cycle. Okay. So what is it? And then he says, and then when people are saying evil things about you, because guess what? They will. Hooray. This is what it means to be a Christian. What you're going to do is bless them. Um, Dallas Willard said this, he said, blessing is the projection of good into the life of another. It isn't just words. It's the actual putting forth of your will for the good of another person. It always involves God because when you will the good of another person, you realize that only God is capable of bringing that. So we naturally say, God bless you. There's birds in here. Um, some of us, though, I will say this, in our, in, in our trying to get out from under whatever it is we feel like is being spoken evilly about us. We haven't spoke words of blessing, we've spoke words of cursing. And the Bible tells us here that the only way you're going to inherit blessing is by speaking words of blessing over those that give you evil. Now this is a really good verse. It sounds, this is an easy one to read, right? Um, can we just go back to that scripture for a second? It's, it's easy to say, yes, I'm gonna bless those who are evil to me. Generally speaking, because when, when we can say that, it's, it's because nobody's saying evil about us. Like, oh, I just, I'm just blessing the whole world. Do you know when it's easy to say that? When everything is going well. When it's Friday afternoon and you have the afternoon off and the sun is shining and there's not three feet of snow outside and it's a good day to be a Canadian, etc., etc. It's harder to do this um, when it feels like you're under it. But I want you to, again, go back to the people that this letter was written to. <clears throat> they had been displaced from their homes. They had been, their, their lives had been broken down. They had been accused of burning an empire to the ground. And then Peter has this little nice one here. The, it says, replay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called. You were called to this. Listen, you were called to bless the people in your neighborhood. You were called to bless your neighbor whose dog barks at three in the morning. You were called to bless the country we live in. You were called to this. See, it, some people, they struggle all their lives. We're wondering what their calling is. Well, look, Peter has straightened this right out for you. Your calling is to be a blessing. This is why people should want to be around Christians because we're blessing machines. 
That doesn't just mean you give some little, like, we already talked about the virtuous cycle. It's got to come from deep within you. We bless people. And this is how we inherit blessing. So we wonder sometimes why we've got, like, weeds growing up in our life. It's because we have sown weeds. You sow carrots, you're going to get carrots. You sow curses, you're going to get curses. You sow blessing, you're going to get blessing. We must be people who bless and not curse. Okay. We have a lot to get through, and I was praying before the service, God, help me to be quick. I, he needs to help me now a lot. <laughs> okay, so then, uh, then, then Peter talks about, he comes to this psalm, Psalm 34. Whenever New Testament writers um, hearken back to the Old Testament, you know that they're really trying to underline something. And he comes to Psalm 34. I would encourage you to read it this week. He says, whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What's hilarious here is that Peter is talking to a bunch of people who are exiles. And how he starts it off is whoever would love life and see good days. What? Like these people have been, their lives have been wrecked. Can you imagine this? You're, you're uh, hating your life and everything has gone wrong. Some of you say, yes, this word is for me. Everything's gone wrong. And then someone says, you know what? If you really want to love life, <laughs> if you really want to have a good time, Seek peace and pursue it. This is basically the, the basic thing that Peter is saying in 1 Peter chapter 3. When you're under it, what you've got to do is seek peace, not seek conflict, not seek... And we talked about this a, a number of months ago. Remember how we talked about how everybody... Hold up your phone. Everybody hold up your phone. We're going to do it again just first. Just hold up your phone. I know you have them. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So now, like... If you left your phone in Red Deer, would you go get it? Yes. If you left your, if you left your phone in Lethbridge, would you go get it? Yes. What about Vulcan? Did you travel to Vulcan to go get your phone? Yes, you would, because you are an important person, and people send you text messages all day and important emails. But many of us, we will leave our peace anywhere. Peter just says, you've got to seek peace and pursue it. Find peace, whatever it takes. What is keeping you up at night? You must seek peace and pursue it. And we seek peace by going back to what Peter says. How do we seek peace? That virtuous cycle. We've got to get in that virtuous cycle, being compassionate to one another, uh, believing the best in each other. So let me ask you this. Are you seeking peace? You seeking and pursuing peace? Here are some questions that you probably need to contemplate from Scripture today. Could my life be described as peaceful? When Jesus comes and becomes Lord of our life, our lives should display his peace. Could my life be described as peaceful? Am I a peacemaker would be another way to say it. Have I allowed offenses to steal my peace? So some of you have been offended. Some of you have been offended by things that I have said in the last little bit. Don't, don't let me steal your peace. Or don't let the person sitting next to you steal your peace. Seek peace and pursue it. Speak blessing over each other. Am I allowing circumstances that can't be changed to take my peace? There are some things the Lord has not put you in a position. Let me just speak quite frankly to you. This idea that you can change the world. Of course... Of course the Lord can change the world. But some of you haven't been put in a place to change the things that are happening in our world right now and you're allowing that to steal your peace. 
Don't, don't allow things that you can't do a thing about keep you up at night sweating. Stop sweating and go back to sleep. Well, some of us just need to tell ourselves that. I mean, I get to these, these places where I toss and turn, and I get up in the middle of the night, and all of a sudden I have to just say to myself, Jessica, there is not a thing you can do about this. And not sleeping is just making you cranky. Go back to sleep. You've got to speak to yourself like that sometimes. The Psalms remind us that part of our job as people who follow Yahweh, who follow God, is that we are in charge of ourselves. God is not going to make you an auto-robot. He's not going to say, now, this thing that's really going to annoy you, I'm going to put you on autopilot. No, you have to decide. I'm not allowing that. Finally, am I trying to solve things that only God can solve? Okay, so then Peter gets into section two, how to endure trials. He says, who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear the th their threats. Do not be frightened. So Peter tells us that if we're going to love life and see good days, um, seek peace and pursue it. And then immediately after that, he says, he reminds us that we're going to suffer. <laughs> oh, I love Peter. It's just really... And this is kind of indicative of Peter's whole way of discipling these exiled Christians. He's kind of like the opposite of a prosperity preacher in that he doesn't tell them that, oh, you're going to come to Jesus and everything is going to be like unicorns and pixie dust. It's not all going to be easy. But he, on the other hand, he's not a doom and gloom preacher either. He's balanced. He reminds Christians that following Jesus means joy in a good life because he already says, you're, you're gonna, if you want to have a good life, I mean, nobody would, it would be mean if he said, hey, if you want to live a good life, nah, just kidding, you're not going to live a good life. You're going to live a terrible life. Hey, he says, you, you are. If you follow Jesus, I mean, this is the best life that you can live. I'm not talking about just like a perfunctory, like I come to church. I, I'm talking about like really following Jesus. You're going to live a good life. But he, and he says this, don't get yourself into trouble that you shouldn't, I mean, don't suffer needlessly. But then he says what life really is like. But if you do suffer, know that you're still going to live a good life because God lives inside of you. And this is the point. Regardless of what happens circumstantially, you're going to be fine. Can I just speak that to your spirit this morning? Some of you have come in in turmoil today, and I want you to hear the word of the Lord to you today that says regardless of what happens, regardless if you get that promotion, regardless if everything goes Smoothly, you're going to be fine because Jesus lives inside of you. And that is the word of the Lord. And then he says, but in your hearts, review Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Growing up as a teenager, this scripture, I remember uh, youth pastors and my pastors telling me, like, this is, I, I, I memorized so many tracks. When I was in the seventh or eighth grade, I'd go downtown Hamilton, um, which is a city in Ontario that kind of, was kind of rough, it was a steel town, and we would have to go downtown Hamilton with um, these tracks memorized. And the point being, we would go and, like, just witness to people. I am, I'm shocked that I did this now because I'm so shy. And, but I would march up to people and say, I mean, basically we'd start it off with, if you were to die right now, would you know that you... Has, have any of you done this kind of ministry before? Yes. Others of you are looking at us like, this is crazy. And it was in some way, and in some ways, I mean, I'm not dogging, I mean, I think hearts were right and good, but do you know what this scripture says? Be prepared to, to answer the questions that people have. Do you know, no one was asking me, you know what, little girl? I'm wondering what would happen if I died. 
I, I was asking the questions, and there's a time and place for that, but just so that you're feeling relaxed, I actually don't think this is what the scripture was talking about. The scripture is talking about um, that our lives should be so different that people are actually asking us about what's different about us. Uh, we don't have to manufacture oddity. Uh, people should be looking at our lives because we followed, do you see how it's all connected though? We followed that virtuous, um, we followed that virtuous cycle and now we're seeking peace and we're pursuing it. There should be tons of people asking us, what is different about you, particularly in this climate? And by the way, this is the secret of the early church's success. They did not have tracks back there. There was no printing press. Uh, they lived in ways that blew everyone's mind. Rodney Stark, who is a sociologist, uh, this week, by the way, again, I put some resources into the resource section on our website if you're interested in following any of the scholarship. Rodney Stark is a sociologist who wrote a book that was quite controversial. I, I like a lot of what he said, though, about the early church here. Um, he said there are several things about the early church that set them apart. First of all was this multi-ethnic unity. People looked around and said, whoa, there's all kinds of people from all kinds of um, countries and languages and they're unified. Um, and secondly, they were radically generous. They took incredible care of the poor. Um, there's a famous letter from the Emperor Julian and he was complaining and this is what he said. He said, these godless Galileans care not only for their poor, but for ours as well. Isn't that amazing? Like people were like kind of mad, like what, what are you doing taking over our poor? You're taking care of everybody. This is like the worst. They were weird. Like this was not normal in the first century. Or how about this one? Only in the church was there a regard for all life, uh, especially those lives considered cheap by the Roman Empire. Uh, Rome at that time had its own sort of... Um, population control scheme. Um, if a Roman family had a baby they didn't want, they'd just leave it in the trash overnight. And there are ancient letters from Roman men to their wives that said this, if it's a boy, keep it. If it's a girl, um, discard it. In response to this, the early church practiced things called baby runs. Did you know this? Uh, members would walk the streets at night listening for these discarded babies. So like they would go out, this is like a thing they did. And soon, churches were filled with new babies. People adopted babies into their family, particularly girls. The, the new early church was filled with all these baby girl babies that had been discarded. This was what made the church odd. When you told people, well, I'm going on a baby run tonight, what? You didn't need to have a track about that. People would say, why would you do that? Because I actually believe that all life is created by God, formed in the image of God. These things made them odd, and they provoked questions. So let me ask you this. When was the last time someone asked you about your generosity oddness? Or your faithfulness oddness? And if they haven't, maybe it's because you're not that much different. This scripture challenged me, like challenged my heart. Because if I lived actually in that virtuosity cycle, I'd have all kinds of people asking me, what? What, what, is it, how, what is it that makes you different? So one more observation about this. 
He says that we're to even answer their questions with gentleness and respect. It doesn't matter how good your answer or how compelling your life. It doesn't matter how many baby runs you do or how many nice things you do for other people. If you don't do it with gentleness and respect, you lose your witness. Screaming Jesus in someone's face doesn't change them. I'm sure that no one, and I said this before, has ever come to Jesus through snarky Facebook remarks. You, can't do, you can do everything right. Be a great defender of theology, adopt a child, be a model Christian, but the minute you speak hatefully towards someone, you undo all of that. That's what First Peter tells us. If you don't feel quite challenged by this, I... I, I um, well, I pray that you will be challenged, that God would challenge us, that we would have people saying to us, what is so different about you? How is your life like that, that much connected? And this is where the word of God, listen to me, can I just keep calling us back this, to this? This is where if we'll allow the word of God to challenge us, it will actually change the way we, we, the rubber meets the road, the way we live our lives. Okay, so now we get to... Um, the really wild scriptures. Uh, let me just tell you this, that Martin Luther said this. A wonderful, we're going to read it in a second. He says this, though. A wonderful text is this, and a, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament. I like how he, he starts it. What a wonderful text, and I have no idea what it says. I don't even know for certainty what Peter means. So this is Martin Luther. Um, okay, so now we're going to read the scripture. Um, and it says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Okay, this part's good. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. Yes, yes. Uh, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. Uh, not also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Okay, so there are two questions that come up. I, I would beg to say that most of us, when we read scriptures like this, we just go, oh, isn't that nice, Jesus? Uh, well, I want us to just grapple with it for a minute, because I think it's important that we learn how to actually ask ourselves questions of the scripture. There's, there's a number of passages in the New Testament like this, and I want to encourage you to become people when you're reading the Bible that you would allow it, you would ask questions of it. So I think the first question is this. What does Peter mean when he says Jesus went and preached to uh, spirits in prison? Um, this is a good question for us to ask. The second question is this. What does he mean baptism saves you? And so let's look at the first question first. Um, Scholars have come to a number of conclusions that are all undergirded by scripture, okay? So this is one of these examples that um, we're not going to like set a theological dogma on this. This is like, we're going to Bible nerd out here. All of you are going to get a Bible nerd badge at the end of this message. Uh, and this is, but this is really like, this is the kind of thing we should be engaged in as Christians, talking about this. This is where Deuteronomy says, when you have kids, you're going to talk about the scripture on the street, you're gonna, because there's gonna be things that still challenge you and still you're still gonna grapple with. So I'm gonna lay out just two um, ways that theologians have grappled with these scriptures. Uh, there's many though. In, in the resource section, again, let me just push you back to that this week. In the resource section, you can read all the ways that theologians have talked about these scriptures. 
It is a really fascinating study. Uh, but again, let me give you just the Coles notes this morning. Um, there, I want to talk about two differing ideas. The first one is that this scripture means that after Jesus' death, Christ went and proclaimed his victory to a group of disobedient demons, principalities and powers, who'd been at work during the day of Noah. And they're bound up and waiting for judgment, and Christ went and um, proclaimed his ultimate victory, a foretaste of what is to happen in the final judgment. And there's lots of scholars who, that's, what, that's how they interpret this scripture. The second, um, the second idea that I, I would tend to prefer is Peter is saying that Christ, through his spirit, was preaching through Noah during Noah's disobedient generation, just as he is preaching through our disobedient generation right now. And this would tie into Trinitarian theology that said God, Jesus didn't just come on the scene in like 1 BC. He always has been. And the spirit of Jesus was interacting with people thousands of years before. And um, so believing that, Noah preached for 120 years to his generation and no one listened. And Peter's saying, listen, people of God who are dispersed all over the place, don't get discouraged if people aren't hearing the, the, the word of the Lord. God will ultimately save people. Um, God eventually kept his word to Noah and brought salvation. That's what 1 Peter 3 tells us. And we can be confident that he will keep his word to us as well. By this reading, you'd read verse 19 in this way. In his spirit, Christ, in the past, proclaimed the gospel through Noah to the spirits or the souls of people who are now in prison. Um, or in other words, they are away from God in hell because they didn't believe Noah's message. And then Peter says, but don't get discouraged. God eventually brought salvation in Noah's day, and he'll bring salvation in ours too. Uh, and it's important that we grapple through this kind of stuff. This actually makes you a stronger... Now, now to be sure, knowledge doesn't make you a stronger Christian. The book of James tells us that demons actually know scripture and can quote them probably better than us. But the grappling of our hearts, like actually having to say, God, what are you saying here? How are you encouraging me here is really, really important. The second, um, the second thing is that um, Peter says baptism, um, which corresponds to this, now saves you. What? Any of you, have any of you read this scripture before and gone, what? Baptism saves me? I thought it was like only through Jesus that I was saved. Or like Romans 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth, believe in your heart. Um, Peter's not con con uh, contradicting that and saying that getting baptized is actually what saves you. By the way, um, I'll say this in a second. It's just that baptism is so closely associated with salvation. It'd be kind of like uh, me saying this. Dave and I, 22 years ago, um, got married by the exchanging of rings. So I'm clearly not saying, as I say that, that like, the only reason Dave and I are married is because we exchanged rings. Otherwise, five-year-olds would be married because they exchange rings, right? But, but what is true, it's a euphemism in our culture that says, you know, the exchanging of rings is kind of like a metaphor. And what Peter is saying here is just saying that baptism and salvation are so clearly uh, intermingled. Um, he makes it clear, in fact, that he's not saying the water of baptism going over you saves you, but it's the response of faith expressed through it. Okay, so there you have it. We have discussed two of the most difficult verses in the New Testament. You're all certified Bible nerds now, and you can um, explain that to somebody, perhaps one of your children, who will be very scintillated by that uh, point. Okay, but the point, what, what we have to do when we come to difficult passages like that is not ignore them. The point is here, I, I want you to get like a taste for like, 
finding the difficult things and saying, God, what are you saying to me through this? How does this like, what's the point of this? And the point of all of this, no matter what interpretation you come to, Peter is saying, don't get off message. This Jesus who saved in the past is the same Jesus who will save you now. And no matter what discouragement you're feeling, no matter what you're coming up against, this Jesus is enough today for you. Journey Church, 1 Peter tells us that the gospel is and always will be first. It's the one message and the one mission and the one agenda that is guaranteed to succeed. Nothing else is in life guaranteed to succeed. I don't know where everything is going in our world. I wish I could get up here and tell you that like, everything's going to get better and we're all going to be back to normal, fully back to normal in like 6.3 weeks. I don't know. But I do know where Jesus is going. I know that just as he saved Noah, he is going to save us. He, is sa- he has saved us, is saving us, and is going to save us. This idea that we believe that Jesus is coming again. Our job in this season, though, is to keep our eyes directly fixed on him. To keep our hope engaged on in him. Because this is truly how we'll live the good life. This is truly how we're to live all the days of our life, engaged and fully fixed on him. You're not going to win every argument. You're going to have people like Nero that say that you've burnt down their life. You're going to have people in your life that will bring evil. Peter says when you're underneath it like that, when you feel like you're discouraged and you're despondent, Your job is to square your shoulders back and bless people in Jesus' name. Your job is to be like-minded, to remember the humanity of people, to be sympathetic to people, to see life like they see them, and to love one another, to have splagma for one another, to have compassion, deep-seated compassion, and humility to think, I might not have it right. I might not have it right. Listen, people of God, Christians in these days, more than any other people on the planet, should be people that hold everything loosely because that's the humility of Jesus. Like we might not have all of our political beliefs all right and we might not have all of, but we have Jesus. And maybe we just need to humbly be able to say, Jesus, all I got is you. I'm keeping my eyes fixed on you. I'm keeping my eyes fixed on you. I'm keeping my eyes fixed on you. And when we do that, not going to have to come up with like 55 ways to evangelize your court. People are actually going to come to us and they're going to say, what's so different about your life? We won't have to have fear and trepidation about like, ah, what do I say? Because I I can just, like it's simple then, right? Like, why are you so different? I'm different because Jesus has transformed the way that I live my life and I'm stuck in this virtuous cycle and there's no way of getting out of it. It's like a song that never ends. So may the life and love of Jesus be a never-ending song in your life. May you be trapped in this virtuous cycle of living with sympathy and with compassion and love to one another. May you have courage to bless people when they send you evil. And may the Lord bring you peace. Amen.
Thank you for joining us today on Journey Church Podcast. For more information about our ministry, visit myjourney.church.